0: Our scripture reading today is from John 5, 16 through 18. This is found on page 890 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you, Holly Kay, for reading our passage this morning. My name is Bill Gorman. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm one of the pastors here on our staff at Christ Community and uh, get the joy this morning of... Reflecting with you together on this passage that we just heard read. Before we do that, I'd love to pause though and pray to ask for God's uh, help and presence uniquely in this space. as We seek to understand and respond rightly to his word. So if you'd join me uh, as I pray over us uh, right now. Father in heaven, we recognize that apart from the work of your spirit, we cannot respond to your word in a way that will actually bear fruit in our lives. And that's what we long for. And so we ask now that as we listen to these words from Jesus, together as his community, as his body, that you would bring fruit from this in a way that only you can. We pray this in his name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you have Jesus as someone that you've you've heard of, if you've heard the name Jesus, then you have some sort of opinion about him. Even if it is, I've heard that name, I think he's like a Christian hero, and that's all you know about him. Or if you've reflected a lot on him, or, or maybe a little, but if you've heard the name Jesus, you have some kind of an opinion, some kind of a take on him, and, you know, we love to speculate about Jesus, what, what he would do or say if he were here uh, on earth today. Um, we, we love to think about that, what that would, what that would look like. You will often uh, hear politicians or activists kind of uh, invoke uh, what, or maybe even your friends on, on Facebook, evoke what Jesus would do or think if he were here today, what he'd say about this issue or this person or problem, and, and, and what, uh, how he would uh, denounce, you know, the other people on the other side of that issue or problem. But I think largely people in uh, Western culture and American culture tend to view Jesus as a person. They tend to view him favorably. You know, we, we paint him. We write about him. Uh, we quote him. I think we love to quote Jesus. You know, There's some great sayings of Jesus that we love to quote in our culture. Uh, Judge not lest you be judged. Uh, Turn the other cheek. That's another one. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are all sayings of Jesus that we love to quote. But we, we love to quote Jesus until he starts talking about himself. When he starts telling us who he thinks that he is. I mean, he's so quotable, so likable, so malleable until that point. When he starts saying, this is who I am. And that's when things start to get uncomfortable. When they can start to get, uh, you know, offensive even some of the things that Jesus says. And eventually even dangerous. I mean, they got very dangerous for Jesus. We heard him say, uh, or in the scripture reading, John tell us that what Jesus was saying here is why the religious leaders wanted to kill him. And yet someone has said that to listen is to love. And so we want to come with a question to which we must listen to Jesus' answer. And that is, what does Jesus say about himself? Who who does Jesus think that he is? And and for John, the gospel writer, we're in the gospel of John. He was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. For John, he thinks that this question of who does Jesus say that he is, is the most important question that anyone can ever ask. Uh, More important than... How was the universe made? What were the origins of the universe? More important than when will the world come to an end? More important even than any other question that you've ever asked in your life is for John this question of who does Jesus say he is? And so today we're going to follow sort of three uncomfortable but ultimately hopeful statements, answers that Jesus gives in response to that question. Who does he think he is? And as we do that, we're going to see that those questions, or that question and the answers that Jesus gives, they require some kind of a response. So what are the answers that Jesus gives here in John chapter 5 to the question, who does Jesus think that he is? Who does Jesus say that he is? Well, let's take a look. And I'd encourage you to grab one of the Pew Bibles, uh, to turn to John chapter 5, or even if you have your phone, you can just open up a web browser and type in John and the number 5, and you will find this. We're going to be kind of beginning uh, in verse 16 today. Um, But what we have in verses 16 to the end of the chapter is a, a backlash, Jesus responding to the backlash from him healing someone. This is what Pastor Dakota walked us through last week. So if you uh, weren't with us last week or you missed that message, I'd encourage you to go back. Uh, Dakota did an amazing job walking us through the, this healing of this man um, who had been uh, unable to walk for 38 years. And you can find all of our sermons. If you just go to our website and then click on Brookside and go to the sermons page, you can find that at any point. It's where you can access those. It's been a while since we've reminded you that that exists. So if you ever miss a sermon and you want to go back, you can do that. Um, either as an audio podcast or even the video of the whole service. They're all archived there. But again, Jesus just healed this guy who had been unable to walk for 38 years. So again, if that had been this moment today, it would have been since 1984 this guy hadn't been able to walk. And now he can. It's just incredible healing that Jesus does. But rather than being stunned by this and worshiping Jesus, the religious leaders get angry that he did it on the Sabbath. Because there's two things and if you remember, if you were here last week, you remember that this guy is carrying his mat on the Sabbath, but so that was kind of considered work. You're not supposed to carry one thing from a, one place to another. So they're kind of mad, like, why are you breaking the Sabbath? And they're like, hey, I couldn't walk for 38 years. This guy healed me. And then they're kind of like, oh, who's this person who did this healing work on the Sabbath? That's a no-no. Also, you shouldn't be doing healing on the Sabbath either. And it kind of feels like they're massively missing the point. Now it's almost like you have this surgeon who does this groundbreaking procedure that no one's ever done before in the history of the world. And the hospital administrator is like, well, you went slightly over budget on gauze, and also the nurses put in a couple extra hours of overtime, and you're going to get written up. And like, wait, what? No, like we just did something that's never been done, and we saved this person's life. And, And the focus is on like, we went a little bit over budget on the Gauze, and there's a couple of nurse overtime hours. But as we're going to see in a minute, the Sabbath was this, this marker for the Jewish identity at this time, which is why it's a big deal. But ultimately why they're so angry here is not even that Jesus has broken the Sabbath, but that his response to that. And you see it in verse 17, where Jesus writes this, or says this: "My father is working until now, and I am working." And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he, and this is key, he, Jesus, was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And one of the key things to remember as we're reading John's gospel is that for John, the language of the Jews is a technical term. There's a lot of scholarship on this. that This refers to the particular kind of set of, of Jewish leaders from Judea, right? So when, when John uses his language of the Jews were seeking all the more to kill, and this is not every person of Jewish ethnicity in all of kind of this part of Palestine, right? This is a particular set of religious leaders who John refers to as the Jews, And it's right here that we get Jesus' first answer to this question. Who does Jesus think that he is? Who does Jesus say that he is? And Jesus says, I am the son of the father. I'm the son of the father. Religious leaders, again, they're seething. They're saying, Jesus, you broke the Sabbath. And I mentioned earlier why we talk about why this is such a big deal. Because the Sabbath, I mean, first of all, it's part of God's... um, Ten Commandments, right? It's part of the, what was revealed uh, to Moses on, the, on Mount Sinai. It's a, the core of this um, covenant relationship that God had with his people in the Old Testament, these, these 10 words. So it's one of the Ten Commandments. But in particular, the laws around keeping the Sabbath and the dietary restrictions that Jews practice as a part of the law became really significant when they were in exile. Because when they were in exile in Assyria and Babylon before they returned to the Lamb, which is now the time when, when Jesus is, is on scene. But they couldn't go to the temple to worship. They didn't have um, the tabernacle. They didn't have synagogues. And so the way that you kind of held on to your culture and marked yourself out as someone who is part of God's people was to, to practice these things of, of circumcision, of dietary restrictions and keeping the Sabbath. Those three were really important. Those are what mark you as part of God's people, even though we can't go to the temple, even though we're away from our homeland. So this is why they get so upset that he's violating this thing that is a marker. Jesus is a Jewish man. You can't, you can't do this. But Jesus' reply to them is basically, Yeah, you're upset that the Sabbath thing is. He's like, Don't worry, it's cool. I, actually, my dad and I made that. Like, we came up with that, and so we can get to find that in other places. Jesus, when he heals on the Sabbath, says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one who created this. I'm the one who's designed this. It's cool. I can, we can do this. I'm the one who set this whole thing up in the first place. Again, and this is why they get so angry. They instantly understood what Jesus is saying. It's at the end of, of the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. It's actually in Genesis chapter 2, the first couple of verses, where God establishes the Sabbath. He sets apart the seventh day. And when Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, when I have the right to define what the Sabbath is about, he's setting himself up as equal to Yahweh, the one who created the heavens and the earth. They get that. that. He's making himself equal to the one who created all things. But more than that, he calls God his Father. Which, again, at this time, we're used to using that language in the church Christians throughout history, this is one of the hallmarks of of how Christianity has developed. Even Jesus himself taught us to pray our Father. To have this relationship where we speak to God as Father. But at this time the Jews would have never used the language, my Father, to refer to God. Maybe occasionally in corporate worship gathering settings that they might say, our Father. That was even rare, but no one would have said my Father. And here's Jesus, this Carpenter's son from Nazareth, this backwater town in Galilee, saying, my father, about the creator of the universe, pointed to this special kind of relationship. And more than that, he says, and how you respond to me is how you respond to the father. It's how you respond to God. How you treat me is how you treat God. And how you treat God is how you ought to treat me. God's honor is Jesus' honor. And if you receive Jesus, you receive God full stop. If you reject Jesus, you reject God. And it's hard for us to, I think, either have become so accustomed to the Bible. We've kind of grown up with this book and we're kind of used to Jesus saying these kinds of things. And of course, he's he's truly God, he's truly man. Of course, Jesus says these things. Or if you're brand new to the Bible, to feel the impact of what Jesus is saying. I think one way to get it is, if you imagine, uh, if you were to uh, next month go and attend the, uh, the conference, uh, the World Conference on uh, Quantum Physics, this is a thing that's actually happening, uh, it's in Amsterdam in May, so it's still time if you want to sign up and go, and you go to the, this, this World Conference on Quantum Physics. And they're there talking about theoretical quantum mechanics, and you've got the smartest sort of theoretical physicist in the room from all over the world. They're coming together to talk about this. They've dedicated their entire professional lives and careers to studying this field, this discipline. And in the middle of one of the presentations, some dude with no credentials, no training as far as you can tell, stands up and says, you know that whole quantum uh, entanglement thing you're talking about? Yeah, my dad and I came up with that. Do you like it? You want want me to explain a little bit more how it works? I mean, if you can imagine how that would go over in that room, how the air would just get sucked out, how there'd just be this, like, what? Like, who? You and your dad came up with this? You get some sense of what these Jewish leaders are experiencing, what really anyone at that time would experience when Jesus is saying, yeah, God is my father, and we came up with the Sabbath, and we can define what's What's okay to do on the Sabbath and what's not okay to do on the Sabbath? And, and Jesus is saying underneath every religious question that the world has ever asked, every scientific discovery we've unearthed, every philosophical debate about the nature of reality itself, behind every curtain, under every rock, the uncaused cause, the first domino effect that leads to right now is the love of Jesus for the Father and the Father for Jesus and the relationship of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, all this. that the, This is where it all began. And that everything exists because of an overflow of love in that relationship. The base of everything starts here. And this is central to Christianity. As you read the New Testament documents, which you get the Gospels up front in the New Testament, and the rest of the the letters and writings that we have in the New Testament are reflecting on what does it mean to live as if Jesus truly were the risen King of the universe. And as you read through those New Testament documents, all throughout them, every book or letter puts Jesus on level ground with the Father or uses Jesus' name where you would expect to get the Old Testament name for, for God, Yahweh, or, or God the Father would rightfully fit in. You can put the name of Jesus in that space, and the New Testament authors regularly do. Jesus is God. He's God's only Son. He's one with the Father. That is the first claim that Jesus makes. And he doesn't even wait for the religious leaders to respond. I mean, you can imagine their their mouth, they're still kind of hanging open, trying to take in what Jesus has just said. And he goes right on to the second thing, which is Jesus says, my word is all that matters. That literally everything from the heavenly spheres to your immortal soul hangs on every word that comes out of my mouth, Jesus says. If you go up to verse 22, Jesus says that not even the Father will judge anyone, that all judgment, that is who gets to declare what is right and wrong, who gets to assess the fabric and framework of every single person's life who has ever lived. Jesus says, all of that has been given to me. The Father has entrusted all of it to me, not just some of it, not most of it, but all of it is to me. I'm the one who has the right, the authority, and who will evaluate every human life You can define right and wrong. By my word, Jesus says, the dead will be raised, the heavens will be opened, and that by rejecting my word, you've lost everything. That your education, your pedigree, your morality, your success, your failure, your investments, your debt, your stress, your happiness, your pursuit of justice, your religious works toward anyone else or anything else, these things that we spend most of our time thinking about, pondering, feeling, they are nothing compared to what Jesus says about who we are. They're nothing compared to whether we hear and receive or hear and reject Jesus' word. Now maybe that sounds extreme to you. But it's what Jesus says. And and I think it feels extreme because we don't often actually hear the full force of Jesus saying these things to us to read through, and it's like, okay. But this is what Jesus is saying, that your eternal destiny, what matters most about you, comes down to what I say and whether you accept or reject my words. Now, if anyone else in your life said that to you, like, you, you would think that they were crazy. You'd laugh in their face, right? Uh, try saying this next time you're in an argument with your, with your spouse or your boss or your parents, whatever, that, well, you know what? If you don't listen to my voice, you're eternally damned. Right? How's that going to go over? Um, they, they'll probably treat you like uh, Will Smith did, Chris Rock, uh, at the Oscars. Right? I mean, like any other human being said to me, if you reject my words... Eternally damned. It's like what? Are you, are you serious? Are you in your right mind right now? And what Jesus says about himself here is incredibly dangerous. It's no wonder that from here on out the religious leaders are seeking to kill him, uh, because you would want to kill him too if you were there. Seriously, Jesus—if he's just a human being, if he's only a carpenter son from Nazareth, then what he's saying right now is like is insane. This guy's mad. He's, he's deranged. He's worse than a fool. He's actually called satanic at some point. He's called evil. You're doing these things, Rue really by the power of Satan. No one has this kind of power. No one has the right to say these things. Because how could you take him seriously? How could you not walk away from this, this conversation with Jesus thinking, this guy needs help? He, he's a danger to himself and others. The, the only way that you can leave that kind of a statement from Jesus and, and not have that evaluation is because of what he says next in verses 25 and 26, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. Jesus has more to say about why we should believe what he says about himself. And we're going to spend a lot more time unpacking that actually next week. But Jesus says here that I'm here to give you life. He's making all these bold, audacious, audacious claims about himself And and yet he says, but I'm here to give you life. And not life just in some kind of hypothetical future or some kind of ethereal disembodied heaven someday when you die. The Jews believed in in a resurrection, most of them at the end of time. But Jesus is saying there is a, a resurrection kind of life that you can begin to experience even now. Even now. He says, right now I can bring the dead back to life. Actually, a few chapters later in John 11, he does that with Lazarus. He raises him from the dead. We saw that, his power to do these miracles, to heal the sick. So I can bring the bed back to life. So if you want to know how the movement that we've come to know as Christianity has survived Jesus talking like this, making these kinds of statements about who he is, and, and we've tried to tame him, right? Even his family in the first century said, Jesus, you need to tone it down. People are going to think you're crazy the way you're talking. Most of 19th century scholarship about the New Testament has tried to tone Jesus down to say a lot of this, oh, this was all later editions of the church trying to make Jesus divine. He never actually said anything like this. Joseph Smith in Mormonism, Muhammad in Islam, Hinduism declares Jesus is one of the representations of the supreme deity. All of these different movements have tried to tone down what Jesus says here. Everyone wants to avoid these claims of what Jesus says about himself, but if you want to know why Christianity has survived Jesus making these kinds of claims, you just have to look for dead things to come to life. Because when you start seeing Jesus transform people's lives, giving them a new kind of hope, you begin to sense why this movement has lasted for 2,000 years. Because lots of people make these kinds of statements. They do. I've had the, the uh, privilege of serving as a chaplain for the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department since 2018. Part of what that I do is I go on ride-alongs regularly. I've been with the officers in our city on lots of emotionally disturbed person calls. where you have people who are mentally ill, Maybe they're on some kind of substance, and they're making crazy claims, right, about who they are or what's happening, or you know, the things that they can see right now. But like, no one is like gathering around them, thinking like, "Yeah, this person's the hope of the world." No, like this person, like we need to help them get to, to uh, to smoke mental health so that they can they can get help. But Jesus is making statements like this, and for the last two thousand years, something about who He is. And bringing life out of death, I said, this, "This is the real deal." He's backed it up for the last 2,000 years with lives that have been transformed. You, and you see it everywhere. You see it in authoritarian Iran today. You see it in communist China. you see it in Muslim Kenya. you see it in secular Europe, you see it in consumeristic United States. People who have no business believing the kind of what seems like nonsense that Jesus is saying here from cultures designed and built to reject the whole belief, people who are dead coming to life. John Orper wrote in his book, Who is this man? The Unpredictable Impact of the Inescapable Jesus. He tells the story of journalist Mary Carr, who was a, a lifelong agnostic. She was the, the daughter of a mother who had been married seven times. She actually, her mom set her toys on fire at one point, tried to actually stab her. And she's the celebrated author of, of the, the Liars Club. She, again, she's this chronic alcoholic. And Jesus is the last person that Mary was expecting She actually says, Ortberg quotes her in this and says, if if you told me a year before, she says, that I'd wind up whispering my sins in the confessional or on my knees saying the rosary, I would have laughed myself cockeyed, more likely pastime, pole dancer, international spy, drug mule, assassin. But don't be offended. Jesus somewhere is nodding and saying, I told you so. I bring Dead things to new life. And, and I wonder if some of you maybe you really struggle to believe that anymore. Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time, or you're here with a family member or a friend today. It's like, I used to believe this stuff. I used to believe that Jesus actually who, what is who he says he is in these texts, but I, just, I don't know I don't know buy it anymore. Maybe you have just seen too much death, too much sadness, too much brokenness. I get that. And I just hope that this morning you would consider afresh that Jesus might actually be who he says he is in this text. And that in Jesus' name and by his word, that dead things really do come to life. Okay, so Jesus says that he's the son of God, that his, that his word is all that matters, um, that he's come to give us life. Okay, but what do, we, what do we do with that? What do we do with Jesus' statements here? I think what we need to do is to honor Jesus for who he says he is. And, and that's, again, John, the writer of this work that we have in our Bibles, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that is what he is seeking to do, to have us to respond. That's, that's what John wants us to do, to respond by honoring Jesus for who he says he is. I think it's fascinating that in our cultural moment, we pride ourselves on letting others de- define themselves. right? Like you, In our culture, you don't, you don't tell anyone else who they are. You don't let anyone tell you who you are. You say, this is who I am, and, and expect others to accept that. That's kind of like a cultural norm now, right? I, I was reminded of this. Even like our, our artificial intelligence software wants us to like know who it is and respond to it rightly. <laughs> I, I have a, a Google Home at home, but I have an iPhone. So if I am asking Siri something, I'm supposed to say, hey, Siri. And I'm driving the car, I realize I need directions. And so I go to ask Siri for directions, but I just say, hey, Google. And it just responds, wow, awkward. Like, even, even our artificially created, like, digital assistants want us to get their name right, want us to get who they are correct. Don't, don't call Siri, hey, Google, right? It's going to respond, that's awkward. That's not who I am. And yet, when we come to Jesus, we so easily just disrespect him and, and kind of have the gall to, to define him on our terms. Or to sort of be like, yeah, I mean, I like this part of who Jesus is. I think he's a good moral teacher. The stuff that is in there about him kind of making these claims about being God, I I don't know about that so much. Like, we don't afford Jesus the same dignity that we we sort of demand that others give us and that our culture demands that we give all people is that we at least listen to who they say that they are. So if we want to honor Jesus the way that we say we want to honor every other human being in our culture, it has to start with listening. To who he says he is, and again, you you can choose to to reject him and say this guy is insane. Like I, I I've listened to him and he's insane, or I've listened to him and he's a liar. This is this is what C.S. Lewis's kind of famous uh, argument in in mere Christianity that Jesus is either he's either a lunatic, he's either insane, or he's a liar, or he's exactly who he says he is. He's Lord. So so you can look around this room and say, if if we believe this and Jesus is a lunatic, then we're all just fools, that we're all just delusional falling after him. Or if he's a liar, if if he knows what he's doing, if he knows that this is not true of him and he's saying it anyway, man, like we're all deceived and in big trouble. Or the only other option is that he actually is exactly who he says he is. And if he he is who he says he is, if he really did rise from the grave, then he does hold all life in his hands. He has the power to transform. And if you want to receive the life that Jesus offers, you have to receive him. To receive him in your life, to honor him in your life the way that he deserves as the final evaluator, the final judge over your life. And to receive Jesus in this way is not just to, to have some data points about Jesus that you can regurgitate on a quiz. It's to actually put your functional hope and trust in him and in him alone. That, that you actually begin to trust his definitions of right and wrong, his definitions of reality, that he defines what is good, that he has life in himself, that he knows what's best, that you actually join into his body, the church, and become a part of this community of faith that he has established. And when you honor Jesus, when you receive him for who he is, you become more and more like him. This is what happens when you have this new sort of life that Jesus brings, is you actually become a new creation, Paul says. That new creation life enters into you now. And the more you become like him, the more people will discover that new creation life of Jesus. They will encounter that in you. Because that's actually what happened to Mary Carr, who we heard about earlier. Uh, she talks about going on this quest to find God. She called it God God-o-rama. And she visited, you know, she was this lifelong agnostic. But she wanted, to, is, is there a God out there? What is he like? How do I connect with spiritual? So she said, I'm going to visit all of the religious communities of all my friends. So she visited, you know, everything from, from uh, Buddhists to Southern Baptists, like in this quest. But it was an encounter with a Roman Catholic priest that really changed her and drew her to Jesus. She said this in an interview. She says I met this really amazing priest and he was exactly what I was not interested in. But he was incredibly humble. He lived his life as though whoever came in front of him was sent by Jesus. I I love her honesty. He was exactly who I was not looking for. Of all the places, all the religious communities that she had visited, is like this, this, this guy here, this Catholic thing, this priest, this is not what I'm interested in. But there was something about his humility that he's incredibly hum- humble, that he had this posture of love and listening. Almost, though she describes it almost as like every person that comes in front of this guy, he just believes that Jesus has sent them there, and that he's there for them to serve them, to listen, to love, and to care for them. And that posture is what doer to Jesus. And that's been our hope during the season of prayer that we've been calling E90. So if you're newer with us, we've been last, we're almost done. We'll finish up right at, right at Easter. But we've been taking 90 days to pray for people in our lives who we long to find the hope and life that Jesus offers, the hope in life that we've been looking at each week in the Gospel of John hoping and praying that we too would become the kind of people who when they are with us, that they just sense that, wow. It's almost like they, they just, they're just they here for me, to listen to me, to care for me, to love me, to know me. So I want us to take a moment here. What we've been doing in each Sunday during this, this season is to take 90 seconds just to, of silence to pray for those people who, who we've identified. But maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I've actually come to church for a long time, but there's something about the claims of Jesus that are hitting me Afresh for the first time. Maybe in this 90 seconds, you actually just silently pray and say, Jesus, I want to receive you. Not just information about you, but I want, to, I want to receive you and I want to entrust myself to you. For others of you, you may say, I want to keep praying for those people I've been praying for. Maybe even pray for yourself. Jesus, help me to become a kind of person that when others encounter me, they just have a sense that They just treat everyone like Jesus has just sent people to them to listen to, to love, to care for. Let me give us 90 seconds of silence to pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that we can address you as Father because of what Jesus has done because you have given him life in himself, and that because of that life, he was able to overcome death and give that life to us. So we pray now as we turn toward communion and the celebration of the Lord's Supper, that you would give us a fresh and renewed sense of the life we have in Jesus. Amen.